On episode 134 of the Vincast, I chat with Nina Kaplan, wine and travel writer and author of The Wandering Vine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Vincast. My name is James Guestbrook, otherwise known as the Intrepid Wino, and I could not be more excited about having another new episode of the Vincast available for your listening pleasure, uh, which is actually the first recorded episode of 2018. I cannot believe that uh, we are already in May, and I've only had one recorded episode. It has been a pretty hectic year so far, as I probably have mentioned on previous episodes of the podcast that I've released, uh, and no doubt my YouTube channel as well. But uh, I am endeavoring to finding more time, uh, particularly now that we are uh, post-vintage 2018, to sit down with more potential guests. Uh, And I'd love to hear from you, the listeners, as far as recommendations for guests you'd love to hear on the show. Uh, or even if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, please do get in contact with me at thevincast at gmail.com or via my website. I'd love to hear from you. I always appreciate any kind of um, contact or uh, particularly a review and rating on uh, iTunes or any other uh, podcast sharing uh, app or platform. But um, but for, for the new episode, I am excited to share a, a chat that I had with a woman named Nina Kaplan, who is a a, a journalist and writer based in London, who was in Melbourne recently to release her first book, The Wandering Vine, which I uh, have been sent a copy and I am just absolutely ravenously devouring myself. And uh, it was great to find out about her background and her personal journey with wine that led her to write this book. So I hope you do enjoy the episode. Uh, please do get uh, hang, on, hang on until the end of the episode to find out how you can get in contact with, uh, with Nina and myself. But until then, I'll see you on the other side. Nina, thank you very much for uh, making some time whilst you're here in Melbourne to be on the Vincast. Welcome, and uh, sounds like you've got a, a really fun uh, time to spend here. But uh, yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I start every episode of my podcast asking my guests if they can remember uh, if there was a particular interaction they had with wine at a certain point that was a slightly more profound experience and kind of maybe set them on the path to uh, more interest and uh, possibly a career in the wine industry. Well, actually, I never intended to have a career in the wine industry. Uh, The the profound moment for me was a very long drawn out one because my father um, was very interested in wine. He was a a wine connoisseur. Mm -hmm. And so I grew up with good wine at home sure, and uh, grew interested in wine that way. And uh, I think at some point I was an arts journalist and, and, and talked about wine so much that at some, some point somebody said, well, why don't you write something then? Um, and uh, yeah, so there wasn't really a, a specific moment. There were just lots and lots of good wines at home and I was always permitted, even when quite young, to try them. And, and was uh, the experience, uh, as far as the way that you're 
your father or your parents uh, enjoyed wine, um, like social ex- uh, experience and with food, that kind of thing? Was, did that kind of play into it at all? Oh, absolutely. So we had a, a big round table, which a uh, big oak table, which actually uh, comes into my book because it was it was so important in 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 my growing up. And my father, who um, when my parents split up, wasn't able to boil an egg realized that you couldn't be a, a wine connoisseur and have rubbish food right. so he um he learned very quickly and became a very good very high-end cook and um so there were there were a lot of dinner parties and and lunch parties and i i very early on got the sense that good food good wine and good conversation were inextricably linked whereabouts did you grow up london so um clapham in south london so both my parents are actually from melbourne um, they grew up here, they met here, got married here, and then they moved to England, and then they had children there. So right, okay. I, I, was, I was born there, but with all my relatives so, still in. So, so growing up in London, or um, particularly your father living in London, uh, would have been great as far as getting access to a lot of different wines. Uh, he was a, a connoisseur, you say. Did he like to explore different wines, or did he have particular favourites? I would say both. I mean, he, he absolutely, he liked to explore different wines. He was always very interested in Australian wine, which in England in the late 1960s and early 70s was a problem. Um, apparently there was one odd bins off license with one shelf of Australian wine and you'd meet the same sort of three or four people who were all expat Aussies who at that point were the only people interested in, in good Australian wine as opposed to the plonk. Um, but he, he loved being so close to Europe and he, he loved Rhone wines and, uh, Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and Italy and Spain to a, to a less, lesser extent. But I, I think the sort of the privilege for an Australian of being able to, it wasn't quite pop to those countries then. There was no easy jet then, but mm-hmm. still in comparison to coming from Australia, it was, it was pretty close. Um, and, and did he share wine with you? Did you kind of get introduced to wine by him or was it more observation and later you came to enjoy wine on your own? No, I did. I mean, my, my, my father was a very practical man and at some point he realised he had two teenage daughters and he better do something to ensure that the wine that was all over the house because he built a cellar and then he just filled up the house again and then he put wine in storage and then he just filled up the house again and if he didn't want that wine to go to people who would really not appreciate it, he, he had better uh, take steps to ensure that, that that didn't happen. So he there was one section in our kitchen and wine there was for me and my sister to drink once we were of an age where, where that was appropriate. Right. And his logic was, look, you're going to spend three, four pounds on a bottle of wine as it would have been then. I'm going to spend the same, and it's his money anyway at that stage, I will buy better. Mm-hmm. So what I got to drink at that point was good plonk. Right. Um, but it was a strategy that came with risks. I do remember him accidentally leaving a bottle of Penfold's Grange, as it still was then, too close to this section of the kitchen. My sister, my 18-year-old sister and her friends, opening it and insult to injury, not liking it very much, drinking half, leaving the rest to go off. I mean, he was... If it, I mean, if it was still young, it probably would have been a little bit... Uh inaccessible uh like they probably wouldn't have seen much as well you know being a slightly more elegant wine you would think than uh the stuff that they would usually drink oh definitely i'm not I, to be honest i can't remember how old it would have been it wouldn't have been young young if it was still called penfold's grange which i think it was but grange hermitage 
Yeah, uh, yeah. It was no. It was it was, it was painful. It's not. It's not. It was, yeah, it was your the right. Grange it was the Grange isn't a problem. The Hermitage was the, the problem. Was the, was, yeah, the, the Grange wasn't a problem. The Hermitage was a problem. You're absolutely right. And I'm pretty sure, it, but I, I don't know when they stopped doing that. I can't remember offhand when they I stopped doing like that. It was like the mid to late 90s. Oh, well, yeah, it definitely would have been before, before that. So, yes, you're probably right. It right. probably was just too young. But to be honest, you know, at 18, I just, you know, they probably just had a couple of drinks and then, you know... Went off to go clubbing or sure, something. Sure. I, I, I don't know. I just, I've always remembered you got it. Any vodka? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> just, yeah. But the rest of the time, it was a strategy that worked very well. Right. And when I went off to university, he would give me wine to take up to university on the same basis, which made me very, very popular at university, but also was the beginning of what was then a totally spurious reputation as somebody who knew something about wine. Right. Okay. So it was like wine knowledge by association? Yeah. Right. Yeah, totally. okay. yeah. Uh, did that make you popular at college? Um, I think you get respect for that at college, but ultimately, at the, at the stage where no one can afford more than about three pounds on a bottle of wine, <laughs> it doesn't mean that much to people. And they're probably not necessarily drinking wine, you know, as a like a part of a meal. Sort of like, well, we drink wine because it's, it's alcoholic and exactly. relaxes us and makes us feel good and. And it's a way to sit around in the bar, college bar, and yeah. So I think. And you feel sophisticated. Yeah, not our college bar. I'm not not (laughs) that sophisticated, but but yes, it was it was it was more. They were more impressed by quantity than quality, right? Like that, absolutely. Therefore, you know, good value was uh, pretty high in the priorities. Um, What did you study uh, at university? French and Russian. Language. Wow. Okay. With any particular kind of idea of a path career-wise or um, what was where, where did the passion for language studies come from? I don't know, to be honest. I mean, my, my mother spoke several languages. Um, uh, I always wanted to learn French. Um, and Russian was, at the age of 18, I had this great idea I was going to read War and Peace in the original. And sadly, I've, I never did. And mm. now I certainly never will because I've forgotten most of my Russian. Um, but, but no, uh, and I do, I do think that if you're, if you're interested in other cultures and if you're lucky enough to have the opportunity and the ability to learn languages, you, you, you learn an awful lot about how other people think. And I do think that people think differently in different cultures, in different languages. Most certainly. And that a language as different as Russian, you, you really get a strong sense of that. I also think that um, study of, of other languages gives you a better understanding and appreciation for your own language. Yes. Because, you know, I remember when I was an exchange student in Japan, sitting in their English classes, thinking, how do you teach English? Because to my, to my impression, like, it has no structure whatsoever. It's just completely random. And then I saw the way they would break up sentences in the same way that I learned Japanese. Well, not the same way, but in a similar way. I'm thinking... Oh, yeah. And you start to realize, oh, there is kind of a framework. There is kind of method to the madness. So uh, I think that that's a really great benefit to the study of languages as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so where did, uh, where did the study of languages take you? Um, well, I always, well, I always wanted to, well, actually where it took me was into film journalism. I was, I was about to say I always wanted to be a film critic, but I always wanted to be a film critic because my year off before university, one of the things gap I did, year. I had a gap year and I spent some of it here, um, but I spent some of it in Paris, improving my French. 
and um, they still have a lot of, and had even more then, of these old cinemas mm. which show classics. Mm. And I just walked into a cinema one day and saw a film in the way that nobody sees films anymore, which is just because it happened to be showing, and fell totally in love with um, new wave French cinema, right. cinema from the 1960s. Um, and uh, so, yeah, the desire to be a film critic grew out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, so yes, I guess, I guess, I guess my degree did in some way lead me towards the, the beginnings of my career. And you had, you felt a more of an affinity to, um, to criticism or to, to, um, analysis rather than to creation? Uh, well, I always wanted to write. So, but, but yes, I mean, I guess I could have wanted to be a screenwriter. Sure. But um, no, I, I I really enjoyed being a film critic yeah. for a, for a while. Um, it's a it's an interesting challenge. The, the the best thing I ever read about this was Pauline Kael, who 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 was the film critic for the New Yorker for many years, mm-hmm. saying if you if you're in a room full of people, you'll always know the people who really love film. They won't be the people talking about the films they loved. They'll be the people talking about what they loved in the films they hated. Yes, and okay. I think it's the best. That's the best encapsulation of good criticism is not that you should be unendingly positive about about everything, but that it's always easier to be negative and that, that uh, the challenge is to, to extract the good and also to convey what something is really like. I think you basically summed up the problems with things like Yelp and TripAdvisor. Oh, don't get me started on <laughs> TripAdvisor. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, – and, and I guess – it is really hard to be totally objective about something, so better to kind of find positives in something rather than just be negative about about things. You know, but, you know like of course everyone can talk about why you know what what they love, but say find value in something that you might not necessarily enjoy. Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's impossible to be objective. By by, by definition, we are we are subjects. We are subjective about things but but having a broader sense of what might be useful or interesting to someone else to hear mm-hmm. rather than i hated that or i loved that because that's you you'd always as a critic you know i started as a film critic and i went broadened out into other forms of arts journalism and you would always get someone saying i don't agree with you in the outraged how can you have got it wrong sense but it's like but it is your privilege to not agree with me and it is my privilege to not agree with you the important thing is did you get anything of use or of interest out of reading what i wrote yes yeah, did it, it totally align with your views it's not like you're you're writing a review saying i didn't like it and it ends there you're sort of saying well this is why and and if you disagree with the reasons that's one thing one thing but if you just disagree because you did like it well that's sort of your problem, really. And, and, and not terribly interesting to talk or, or write about, I no, think. You know, no. Yes, I did, no, I didn't. It's not an interesting argument. It ends up being that classic Monty Python's Flying Circus sketch where it's just contradiction rather than argument. Yes. <laughs> just the immediate naysaying. Um, so how did you get into um, criticism and, and, and sort of journalism in, uh, to begin with? Um, I started in business-to-business journalism um and did lots of things for free as in the in those days doing lots of things for free got you a job in the end these Mm. days i think it just gets you more things to do for free yeah but um so yeah so i started writing for a magazine called flicks which was in cinemas then long since defunct um and i um 
I, what else did I do? I um, worked for the European, also defunct, but a very interesting, um, a very interesting sort of cross between a newspaper and a magazine that was trying to be a newspaper for Europe. Um, and that was, that was, that was really useful, really good, really good training. Um, and then I helped launch Metro, um, in the UK, which is, is, is and was a different company from the metros that are all over the world. And I think certainly were in Melbourne. I don't know if they still are. Oh, the, the, the sort of the free press. The free press. Yeah. So, but th this was originally, it's, it's something very different now, but at the time it was this great idea of let's, let's have something that's free, but not cheap. Right. Um, and so the quality of the journalism was very high in the sense that the person who employed me was the ex features editor of Time Out. She was, you know, she was a serious journalist with a, with a really impressive background. And I learned tons working there, not least how to write briefly because the, but the articles, it was obviously intended to be on public transport. The articles were all very short. If you wrote blog length stuff, somebody would just hack it to death. Mm -hmm. So. Um, yeah, that was very good training. Like a director who um, knows how, exactly how much to shoot rather than shooting long and then having to edit it down by 50% or more. Well, you can, I mean, I, I actually, I tend to write long and edit down, but the important thing is I'm the one doing the editing. Right. And so, self-editing, yeah. yeah. So, but, um, and then I went to um, Time Out. I was, I ended up being features editor of Time Out, like my old boss, just oh, by wow. coincidence. Yeah. Um, and, uh, before that I, I was the editor of a magazine called Metropolitan, which is the magazine on Eurostar, which is the train that runs between London and Paris. I took it. And that, uh, then at that point, my, my French was actually very useful because it's a bilingual, well, it's a, technically it's a trilingual magazine. Um, the third language being, um, Dutch stroke Flemish. It's effectively the same language. I Because it sort of connects up. To it goes, yeah, Belgium it goes up to Brussels. And, and, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah. it's mainly, it's sort of, you know, 40, 40, 40, 40% English, 40% French, 20% Dutch. So it was so, very So just different, different articles would be in different languages or articles no, would be in multiple language languages? And it's translated and not all of the articles get translated into Flemish. Some do, some right. don't, but all of the articles are in English and in French. So obviously it's very political to not seem to be preferring London over Paris in a sure. train that runs principally between London and Paris. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, well, it kind of reminds me of um, often you find publications on airlines um, often depending on where the, the airline is, is from, like it's um, uh, a Japanese airline or something like that, yeah, that have it in Japanese and English yeah. in the articles. Yeah. Okay. I think there are a lot of, lot of publications doing that and in a sense quite right too. Why should we expect everybody in the whole world to speak and read English well enough to enjoy an article. Goodness gracious. Now, mm. now you're talking about one of the main problems I had traveling in Europe is like, why do you expect everyone to be able to understand and speak English to your level? Why are you not even making the slightest bit of effort to at least learn some basic phrases in the country? Show some respect anyway. Yeah. No, no, no. On, with okay. that, I'm in complete agreement. <laughs> Rant over. <laughs> um, and so as far as the kind of, um, that, uh, analysis of, um, of, you know, art and film, um, and kind of dissecting and finding thing, identifying things that you did like about something that you possibly didn't love. Did you find yourself doing that bit by bit with, with wine? Um, oh, that's an interesting question. I'm not entirely sure. Were, you, I, were we just sort of just, just enjoying wines and exploring that kind of thing? 
I was, I mean, I'm opinionated about everything. You don't end up as a critic entirely by accident, I think. So I am opinionated about wine too. Um, but what I really, really found attractive about wine, um, is, is the, the stories that it comes with. Yes. And those can be historical, they can be geographical, geological, political, artistic, you know, there are so many different stories attached. And I find it a little bit of a pity that most wine writing is very much concentrated on tasting notes and where this came from, how it was made. And I, you know, with all due respect, because those things are really important, but not everybody is as interested in those things. Uh, and I do believe most people are interested in a story of some kind. So, um, that was really what drew me into into wine properly was 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 wanting to tell some of those stories. I think that is something that uh, you know wine writers and wine marketers to a certain extent. Uh, it is kind of a shame. It's a missed opportunity because the 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 technical information, the sort of the more black and white. Whilst that is a lot easier to talk about, it's not necessarily something that's uh, an audience and, and a lot of wine consumers are going to relate to, then, then kind of a lot of the information, that's part of the reason why I think that they do think of it as elitist and inaccessible. Uh, and, and yet what they can relate to is people and stories and stories about history and culture. I don't understand why a lot more of that is not talked about. And, and, and when it is talked about only in certain terms and it's like, I guess it's pretty much why I started the podcast, really. Yeah. No, I mean, it's interesting because it's very, it's also very new. I mean, one of the things about, I mean, there's, there's a lot of history in the book that I've just written, Wandering Vine. And, um, some of it is about Roman history as relates to, to wine. And one of the things that you have there is we have no idea what those wines tasted like because nobody ever wrote about that. Tasting notes did not exist. That, that just wasn't that, I think up until really the 20th century, that's not what people were writing about when they were writing about wine. So it's a very, very new thing, but it's kind of taken over. And to me, in a sense, it's a bit like, you know, if, if, you, if you pick up a novel that you love and somebody writes all about the grammar, I mean, it's not that that stuff isn't important and of interest to some people, but it, it won't actually tell you very much about that novel as a novel. And And I find it, I find it a shame also because I've, I've given talks, for example, where people have been holding a glass of wine in their hands and have said to me, what does it taste of? As in, they're waiting for me to give them a toast, tasting note. And I'm there thinking, you're holding it, your palate, you have the right to choose. And, and this actually also comes back to my dad, who would say, he would give me a glass of wine and say, what does this taste of? And I'd say, raspberries. And he'd say, no, 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 it tastes of strawberries. And... The answer is no, it doesn't. I mean, I, I know there are correct, there are obviously certain wines that people say the Syrah of the Northern Rhone tastes of black pepper and you know, th that's fine. And, and quite often you, you can get that. But if you choose not to get that out of a wine, that is your right. Mm. And there's also the problem that a lot of, a lot of the tastes of, of wine comes, come from local products. So there will be tasting notes on Chilean wines. I've seen this, which relate to herbs that grow in Chile, say, that don't grow in England or Australia, that I might not know. It's, it's, a very, it's a very personal thing, I think, whether you want it to be or not. And this drive for a sort of a lingua franca is a bit like getting everyone to speak English. 
And, and but this, this ultimately does come back to that whole uh, objective subjective thing. And I remember reasonably early on in my kind of discovery of wine as a wine professional, uh, visiting uh, cellar doors uh, in wine regions like Mornington Peninsula, Yarra Valley, and having staff sort of say, pour, pour me a wine and, and say, oh, this is our Chardonnay and what you're going to taste is, and it's like, don't tell me what I'm going to taste. Exactly. That's, that, that's, that's kind of like you're, you're basically putting things into my head yeah. and then the, the, like, a, a, you know, worst case scenario, I don't taste that and I think, oh, I don't know anything about wine. And that's where you are potentially going to be alienating wine consumers and they kind of go, oh, well, obviously I don't know anything about wine, so I'll just keep buying my cheap wine. If you are kind of empowering people to think for themselves and and that there are no wrong answers and maybe some answers are more wrong than others, but um, that, you know, what, what you might say lemon, I might say, you know, something completely different, that, that's not necessarily wrong. That's just what you perceive and everything is based on experience and, and, and perception. So, uh, you know, like th- that was something that I really <laughs> didn't like. Well, it also, I mean, this is not open heart surgery, okay, where there are definitely going to be things, lots of things you need to know and right answers and wrong answers. This is supposed to be fun. Yes. And telling people that they have got it all wrong or they don't know anything or even strongly implying those things is not fun for anyone. I mean, it's occasionally fun if you like looking down on people. And I think, that, again, this is where the, where, the, where the problem can come in. Whereas actually, it, it, we are back to, to what we were talking about with regard to, to film criticism. You can disagree with me completely and we can both get on totally fine. Yeah. Unless one of us says, no, you have to agree with me. Yeah. Or that, you know, your reasons are stupid. It's like, well, you know, like we can have a discussion about this and we can put arguments forward and you might, you know, think that I'm wrong and that's, that's completely fine. But don't just com- immediately dismiss me exactly. and say that's a stupid argument, you know, like that, that's, that's pointless. Yeah. Um, and, and at the end of the day, it's not necessarily the way that we, you know, consume things like film or, or wines or food. We're not, necessarily kind of analyzing it in such detail and and you know talking in you know beautiful prose about something we we're, we're just enjoying it and we're sharing it with people and it's contextual it, it's it, it's just that kind of that kind of analysis of wine is is great but it's really only for a very small number of wine consumers and i think that too much focus is put on it and again it it, it is just for me, continuing this idea of wine as a sort of an elitist product, and it's a, you know, and and it's not kind of encouraging people to explore and be more confident with their own choices and what they do and don't enjoy. Yes, exactly. And of course, you know, in 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 the time that I'm partly writing about, because it's my my book is a travel book, so it's not it's not a history book. But but the interesting thing to me was that. In, in, in Roman times, it wasn't about elitism. It was about being civilized. I mean, you, you drank wine if you were civilized. You, you drank diluted wine if you were civilized. And you, you, you didn't drink wine. I mean, the barbarians in Gaul were drinking beer, for instance. Um, so it, it wasn't about, it was a, I mean, obviously there's an element of elitism to that, but it's, you, you can, you can, you too can be elite. Everyone can, can be included. Everyone can, can, drink wine. Yeah. And if you if you don't effectively 
you know, you're in need of you're in need of education. There, there is an aspirational element to it, absolutely, but there's not. This, it's still kind of an inclusionary sort of thing. So come, come and be, yeah, come, come in, be elite, come, come and be sophisticated with us. Yeah. I mean, what could be what could be nice and what could be as opposed to you drink the wrong wine, stand outside. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 a it's a joyous and communal thing. Um, drinking wine and 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 that is what should be encouraged so was it the the, the writing um journalism criticism that gave you more of an opportunity to true travel and did you kind of take advantage of those opportunities to explore more wines try more wines visit wine regions possibly yes yeah exactly um i was doing i was traveling i was doing quite a lot of travel for sort of arts journalism and it was just if I might interrupt, tell me what what uh, art, arts journalism is like. What, how, what what form does that take? Well, um, uh, it took lots of forms actually. Obviously, it started with film criticism. Uh, I wrote a bit about food and drink. Even at that stage, I um, so I, so when you say art, you mean like the art as opposed to art? Yeah, I wrote about art. I wrote about photography. Yeah, cool books. Theatre. Mm-hmm. I mean, as features editor of Time Out, I had a lot of opportunity to write about. And actually, at one point, that job transitioned into being arts editor. And my brief was to write across the arts in London, right. which is still will always be the best job I, I will ever have. It was amazing. Um, Time Out changed, life changed. That's fine. I'm still very happy with the job that I have. But uh, at that point, I could I could treat one of the a world's great cultural cities as my playground, mm-hmm. and that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I did a lot of travel. I went to Japan, in fact, to, to write about 19th century Tokyo, Edo, um, for, uh, uh related to an exhibition, uh, an exhi- a, a exhibition of woodcut art in London. Um, I went to, um, Northern Italy to write about the arch- architect Palladio. And, you know, and, and I would take the opportunity, not so much in Japan, but, um, uh, certainly in Northern Italy, I was like, great, there's gonna, I'm gonna, toddle off and go I went to see Allegrini while I was while I was there and 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 yeah anywhere that 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 um that had good wine which actually Japan does now but I didn't know about it at the time and anyway I had only three days but anyway anywhere else I went that had good wine I would take the opportunity to sort of run away run away and play in a vineyard for, yeah. for a, few, a few hours or a few days and certainly being based in london you know it has still obviously a thriving food and wine scene so i'm sure there were plenty of uh, uh wine bars and, and and good retailers you could uh, explore wines as well good retailers has always been true good wine bars is true now but that has changed a lot actually um you know london has a a great tradition of having all the world's wines because until fairly recently we didn't have any of our own we did at one point have an empire with lots of winemaking areas we we you know it's still it's extraordinary because there was there was no protectionism and there still isn't because you the, the, the english wine industry is very very small you can't protect it in the way that you can protect the australian wine industry for instance. Um, so it's always been a great place to buy wine. It has not always been a great place to drink wine because the tradition was more of people sort of buying wines, laying them down in their own cellars back when people had such things. Um, and that has fortunately changed a lot. And now... More, so it's more of a merchant culture. It was definitely... Well, nation of shopkeepers. Sure. It absolutely was. Um, but now there are, there are great wine... I mean, I'm talking about London. It's changing outside of London too, but it obviously more slowly and I'm less knowledgeable about England outside of London. Um, but there, there is a, a great wine bar culture now in London. Mm. 
Um, and, and so at, at, at what point did you sort of start, did you do any writing about wine at all? Was, did that kind of feed into the, the writing you were doing at all? It, actually, it did. Um, when I was at the European, which is very early in my career, um, at one point I, I asked if I could write about port for some reason. I can't remember what the rationale for this was. I can't remember, remember very much about the piece or find it. Obviously, this is pre-everything being online. Um, but I was clearly already in my mid-twenties uh, interested enough that I went off and researched port and wrote a piece on, on port. And that, in retrospect, is a really nice thing because it's one of the very few pieces I wrote about wine that my dad actually got to read because he died in 2003. Mm. So, um, he, so at that point, I was like... Look, Dad, I've written a piece on wine, so it was, it was, it was, it was very nice from that perspective. And 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 one of the things I've written about quite a lot is that because he did, he died pretty young. He was sixty-five. Um, since then, it has become a way to carry on having a conversation with him. Mm. Um, I I taste wines. I I taste wines that I know he would like quite often. I occasionally taste wines that taste familiar enough that I think I probably tried some version of them many years ago. Um, and it's yeah, it's it's a it's a way to sort of beat death in a sense is to 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 carry on talking to my father through wine. But, um, before he passed away, did you have more opportunity to, to to sort of share wines and explore with him? A little bit. Um, he kept coming out here to, to come to wineries out here. And at that stage, obviously in my twenties, I was no longer accompanying him. Mm. Um, a little bit. We, we drank good wine together. Obviously by that point, I was fully legal to do that. Um, uh, but it's really my, my interest in it became much stronger after he died, probably partly because, um, as I got older, it's become more and more of an interest and, um, and partly because of because of losing him and wanting to to, to keep things in common, um, and my and my partner is also very very interested in wine. And actually, we spend part of our time in 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 Burgundy now because uh, he my stepchildren he has four children and they are young and they are growing up in Burgundy. Oh, so really? um, that's also a good way to continue how, one's wine how education. Awful. What an awful place to be based. It's, um, no, it's a lovely place to be. It's actually, I mean, it's quite funny because it's actually not the bit that we're very close. We're like 50 kilometers from the bit that has from the wineries yep. from the, from the Cote d'Or, but we're in the bit that hasn't actually had much in the way of wine since Phylloxera. Sure. Um, so. Can you imagine what France would have been like pre Phylloxera and which vines everywhere? Yeah. I think it really, really would have been. I mean, which is, which is, it, and still actually where we are, there are a couple of places that have started, again to start making wine around there again but mm -hmm. there's also um uh a few people just who have a few vines in their background they're sure. maybe not even sure what kind of grapes it is it's they've always been there they they make what probably isn't very good wine and then they probably drink it mm -hmm. so there's still that why not yeah i, I could do that um, <laughs> probably could and so more recently how did you kind of find more of a pathway into writing more about wine and, and wine travel and and how did you kind of conceive of the idea of, of this, uh, this new book? I, um, the, the career change such as it is, was accidental that the, the, the world changed and a bit, people were asking me more and more to write about wine and food and travel and less and less to write about the arts. Um, which is a very, you know, a, a, an indication of a sad time for the arts. I very think much certainly so, yeah. in the UK, I, I, I don't know so much about not, here. Not, not just in terms of, um, print media, but just in general, as in far general. as fun, funding, like, you know, government funding for uh yeah for arts projects 
Yeah, exactly, and 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 levels of interest among among print publications, sadly as well. So, and and I I've been writing my column for the for the New Statesman since 2011. So that's given me lots of opportunities to to travel and to uh, to talk to winemakers and and it's just there are, there is always more to do. There is always more to to see and to learn. It's one of the things that I love about wine is you're never going to get to the bottom of it, so yeah. to speak. Um, so there's there's that. But it was also, the impulse behind the book was partly, yeah, partly wanting to talk about these other sides of wine. Um, the historical side, the its ability to triumph over death, its, uh, and, and, and the fact that the vine, the vine travels, the vine has been traveling for a long time, largely, largely not exclusively thanks to the Romans and their expanding empire and them taking vines and planting vines. And as somebody who, you know, I'm first generation English, my parents were first generation Australian, their parents were sort of chucked out of Eastern Europe for being Jewish, either the beginning of the 20th century or in the middle of the 20th century. We are, we are a, a wandering people too. And I think that's something that I have in common with a vine. Mm. Well, if you think about uh, the global wine industry, a large part of that is because of the British Empire. Yes, yes, that's true. Everything, everything comes back to something else. There is no such thing as a, as a, a type of wine or, or a type of vine that has no relation to those things around it. And I, I find that very interesting. One of the things I love about wine is the fact that um, time has so many different kind of ways of moving in that whilst wine is very fast moving and trends are constantly changing and, you know, there's always a new, exciting, you know, some seemingly undiscovered region to talk about, there is the fact that grapevines take a long time before they reach maturity and start to, you know, be more in tune with their environment and produce better quality fruit to make better wines. And, you know, there are so many great wines that do require a lot longer, you know, for them to be ready to be consumed and, you know, at their best. Uh, I, I love the fact that things move at different speeds with yeah. wine. And I think you really see that with, with winemakers. You know, I've met winemakers who say, this wine I'm making today, I won't drink it. My son will drink it or my daughter will drink it or my grandchildren will drink it. And there's a kind of a more easeful relationship with, in a sense, with one's mortality. That This idea that that's okay because that's how things work. The vine moves in cycles. Humanity also moves in cycles. And, and, and a sort of a comfort, you know, a comfort with that that I think most of us, especially those of us who live in cities, really lack. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for example, you know, someone who plants a new vines and they say, well, I'm probably never going to see these at their best, but my children will. Yes, exactly. They'll, they'll you know, hopefully they'll continue on after me and, and they're going to get, have the benefit of it and, it'll, and that'll keep, keep happening, yeah. hopefully. Um, so as, as far as uh, wine and travel, where have been some of the most profound experiences for you? Oh, that's, that's an interesting one. I actually, um, well... Um, for the for the book, I would say uh, going to Campania, so south of south of Rome, and talking to people who are trying to revive vineyards that were famous two thousand years ago. Are you possibly thinking of Mastro Berardino? Um, I Mastro Berardino is definitely one of them, and the other one is they're doing it at Pompeii. Uh, yes, the, and and Villa Matilde as well. Yes. So, um, uh, who's a very he's a very interesting guy. His 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 father sort of 
revived the whole the, the whole idea of this this sort of legendary wine Falernian that the, that the Romans write about and considered so good it would keep for two hundred years, which you know you've got to wonder about that. But 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 they are making really beautiful wines in more or less the same place. Right. And yeah, so people in touch. There are people who are in touch with the next generation, and these are people who are in touch with a lot of generations in the past. And I found that really really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, coming to Australia and going to, to vineyards here, actually, I, I, you know, I love Australian wine, um, which is, doesn't, still doesn't have a great reputation in, in England because we've had too much Australian plonk come in. And, you know, Australian plonk is, is great too at what it does, but I find it very frustrating how, how many people don't realize what really great top end wines there are coming out of Australia. A lot of them not coming out of Australia, staying here, but, but we do we do get very very good Australian wine. So coming coming to pl- going to places like the Mornington Peninsula, or the Yarra Valley, or, or Margaret River, and being able to try and convey to people back home what they're missing out on if they think that that uh, all, all Australian wine is the is the sort of five quid cheapo schmipo. Um, that's also that's also been been very important. And the third place I would say would be the Rhone. Because the Rhone is a place that most easily to me mingles, uh, what have been, while I've been writing a book about wine and the Romans, um, my two main interests. So you've got the fantastic wines of the Rhone Valley, which are there because the, the Romans brought, brought vines and planted them there. Mm-hmm. And you've also, coming out of the soil in a, a quite a similar way, it seems, got all these incredible, uh, monuments and remains of, of that time in the past when the, when, when this was a, a center of, of Roman commerce and the Roman empire. Mm. Uh, so tell me about, um, how you conceived of the idea of the book and where the particular interest in, in the, in the Romans came from. Well, partly it was actually, it was going to Rome. We did, I, um, we took my four stepchildren to Rome in, uh, 2015. And one of the things that we did was we went to see Titus's arch and on on the, on the inside of Titus's arch, which was which is two thousand years old, and was built to um, glorify the victor the victory over the Jews in the Roman Jewish wars, um, which resulted in the destruction of the Second Temple and uh, the and the Jews being forced out of Judea. Um, and this there is an incredible there's in, it, it, they decorated it with the triumphal procession so you've got all these romans you've got all these jewish slaves that they've captured and the menorah the, the seven branched candlestick from the temple it was loot from the temple is on there and i i looked at this and i thought this is so interesting this is a part of my heritage as a a, a modern and totally non-religious jew but you know interested in my past and it, it brought home to me that the that the Jews were sent traveling by the Romans, and because I think about wine a lot, I think, but so was so was the vine to a large extent. So was the vine, and so I got interested in trying to tie those things together. And they are they are tangentially related, but they are related. Well, they certainly yeah. I mean, yeah. when you think about the Jews, they did sp- spread through you know various and far flung parts of Europe and took roots. Yes, in the same way the grapevines did. Well, they tried to take root, and then usually the well, roots yeah. were yanked up and, and sent somewhere else. But um, I mean, it's really interesting that the yeah, Colosseum. I mean, there, there was... were unfortunate, <laughs> unfortunate is a very mild way of putting it. Things that happened in the twentieth century, but long uh, before that, that twentieth century was just a culmination of, of, 
uh, I mean that 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 had been happening for and and I mean it's it's very interesting. You have you have really strong, for example, a, a really strong Jewish community in Spain in the early medi- medieval period, and they were all thrown out by the very religious uh, Queen Isabella and, and King Ferdinand. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, sorry, right. nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition exactly, and they were thrown out the same year that Columbus went to America. So, fourteen ninety two, big big change in 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 Spain. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I, I found that interesting, and and a more and and the, the the wine stuff and the Roman stuff was really more the focus. But I think it was the the me stuff was was what, what brought those things together, mm. I think, which is why the subtitle of the book is Wine the Romans and Me. It's not because it's all about me. It's because the 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 genesis of this book was this was this idea of of of, of where the wines, the Romans and the Jews wine the Romans and the Jews all meet. Fantastic. It sounds fascinating. I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Um and the the book is now available, soon available the book is um yes it's 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 out now in australia i think it's 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 the supplies are actually coming in in this week or next week so apparently I held my launch last night and i was told that the, that the um the books that are um that were there are the first lot to get into australia but in the next week or two it should be available in a good bookshop near you fantastic well uh, i do encourage everyone to to seek it out and are there are the places where people can uh, can find you online or in print media yes absolutely um i have a website which is just ninacaplan.com um, I, my articles in the New Statesman once a month, um, the new, and they are, for the moment anyway, they are, they, they are free to view online. Um, so, although I think that might be changing. Um, yeah, and I write in various places. I'm writing about Australia's wineries for, um, National Geographic Traveller, so that should be out in the next few months. But I try and, I try and alert people on my website. Um, to, to what I'm doing in, in terms of, uh, print journalism. Um, and. And can uh, people find you on social media? They can definitely find me on social media. I'm on Twitter as Nina Kaplan. I'm on Instagram as Nina H. Kaplan. Um, and in theory, I'm on Facebook as, as Nina Kaplan, but I'm more on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, again, thank you very much for making some time. I, I do hope you have a, a lovely a trip here. I believe you're heading over to South Australia as well. Uh, so, yeah, uh, thank you again. Thank you. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Vincast. I have been James Gasbrook, otherwise known as the intrepid wino. I'm very excited to let you know that Nina's book is now available. Uh, if you go to the bloomsbury.com website uh, and make sure you are set to Australia, you can actually get a 30% discount on her book until the end of May 2018. Simply enter the discount code intrepidwino, lowercase, or one word, uh, at purchase uh, to get that discount. I heartily recommend the book. I've been reading it. It's fantastic. You can follow me on social media at IntrepidWino on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and you can find the podcast on Twitter at The Vincast. You can find my YouTube channel, Intrepid Wino, one word, uh, where I've got lots of different videos, including my Let's Taste series and also my own winemaking experiences under my uh, burgeoning wine brand, Vino Intrepido. Uh, please do subscribe, uh, leave a comment on some videos. I'd love to hear from you. You can also subscribe to the podcast on any number of different podcast sharing apps and pl- uh, programs. 
such as iTunes, Player FM, Stitcher, Podbean, iHeartRadio. Uh, subscribing means you get the newest episode as soon as it becomes available. You can access the entire back catalogue. But also, it's a great way um, you know, for you to share your appreciation for my guests and for myself by leaving a rating and review. I really do appreciate any support and love hearing from my listeners. Uh, of course, all that information is available on my website, intrepidwino.com, uh, as well as a number of different ways to get in contact with me uh, and different writing I've done in the past. Uh, I hope to have some more episodes for you coming very soon, but until then, bye. Melbourne's Podcast Network. EarbudsNetwork.com